Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're going in search of future fossils with David Farrier and his new book, Footprints. David Farrier teaches English literature at the University of Edinburgh. He was a recipient of the Royal Society of Literature's Giles St. Torbin Award and his work has appeared in Eon and the Atlantic. And David's first book we're going to be talking about today footprints in search of future fossils which i have been reading while on lockdown we're recording this during the, the pandemic which is certainly giving it some of the ideas in the book uh, an extra resonance david welcome to little atoms thank you for having me neil tell me first of all what the what the idea behind footprints is uh, the idea behind footprints is what traces of us will be left in the very deep future. I really became very interested in this question, you know, as, as stories of strange change began to become more and more frequent in the news. You know, we live in a world now where one in 100 year storms are happening every couple of years, uh, where the seasons don't match up to the kind of rhythms that, that we're used to. You know, the world is changing very noticeably and, and in some cases extremely rapidly. And I became interested in, well, what is the long view on this as well? What evidence might there be in the deep future of the world that we lived in now and the choices that we made for good or for ill? A lot of the ideas like the book, you know, you travel in the book to various places um, where there has been either mega cities or massive quarries where human beings have made their mark on on the earth or, um, you know, to we'll talk about ice cores later on, but all the way through the book as well. Um, as I said, you're an English literature professor. There is a, you know, the ideas of where these ideas crop up in, in art, both, both now contemporary and, and in the past, are also featured in the book. And um, and so I want to talk about the idea of the footprint, the, the image of the footprint itself, yeah. first of all. It's an incredibly resonant idea. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, it, it certainly resonated with me. That it came together through a kind of coincidence, really, which was the coincidence uh, in the same month in May 2013 of two different kinds of footprints, I should say, sort of coming to the surface. In, in Haysborough, in, in Norfolk, a series of 
850,000-year-old hominid footprints were uncovered by a seasonal storm, evidence of a passage that, that you know, was lost in time that suddenly rose to the surface. Um, the footprints only lasted, I think, a few weeks before they were washed away. But in the, in the time that they were there, they were studied, photographed, and they were extraordinarily precise. You could see the outlines of individual toes. You could tell the ages, uh, or we could project the ages of the different members of the group. It was an astonishing um, discovery. Of course, I, I didn't actually get to see this, but I've, I've read a great deal about it afterwards. And in the same month, climate scientists at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii recorded for the first time in excess of 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the, in the atmosphere. 400 parts per million is in some cases, uh, in one respect, I should say, an uh, arbitrary boundary. Carbon dioxide levels have been rising for decades uh, through human activity, but 400 was seen as a kind of limit we didn't want to breach. We're currently now it's somewhere around 410, 411, I think. And it was the coincidence of these two different kinds of traces in the same moment that really captured my attention. Um, it really made me think, what might someone in the far future make of the kind of traces that we've left, the mark of passage that we have made through the atmosphere, if you like, leaving these carbon traces behind? Might they feel the same kind of shiver of recognition that it's possible to feel when you look even at photographs of the Haysborough footprints. Both of these different kinds of traces are stories. Uh, they're stories of passage. They're stories of life as it was lived. Um, they're accidental memories. Neither were kind of made with the intention of leaving an impression on the deep future, being, uh, being left to be discovered millennia later. But still, in both cases, they will persist. In the case of the footprints, they were uncovered after um, 850,000 years in the case of our carbon traces in the atmosphere. It's thought that it will be something like 100,000 years before the last traces of the anthropogenic carbon that we've put up there so far will be weathered away. And what really struck me was that these are both stories. They're ways of, of engaging with how life was lived. And from there, the idea of, of the future fossil, the question, what will our future fossils be and what stories will they tell about us took shape. We're going to look at some of the, the various areas that you, you cover in the book. And, and I want to start with roads. We're going to move on to cities in a moment. But between all of the cities, you know, the vast majority of humanity lives in cities nowadays. But before we get on to cities, between all of those cities is the, um, the road system. Now, this chapter starts off with um, a couple of interesting images of you making a trip to both the old and new the first or fourth road bridges. Tell us about that. Well, I was lucky enough to get to walk over the new uh, bridge over the Firth of Forth, the Queensbury Crossing, when it was opened. I lived with my family in Edinburgh and, and residents were balloted to, to see if, if they could uh, win the opportunity to walk across uh, to kind of mark its opening. And we were fortunate enough to be selected. So one morning, um, a beautiful sunny morning, we were bussed out to the beginning of, uh, of the bridge on its, its southern side and got to walk across. And it was an astonishing experience, really. It was uh, a bit like mapping 
back in time to how roads perhaps used to be. It was more like a pilgrim route. Of course, there were no cars, there was no traffic, just lots of tramping feet. And it really resonated with me thinking about how used we have become to the sound of traffic, to being pushed to the margins of the roads that we, we travel on if, if, we're ha- if we happen to be on foot, to allowing you know the, the roads to connect us in, in, in the way that they do rather than deciding how we want to connect from where we are to where we're going. It was an astonishing creation as well. I mean, the, the bridge is is vast, it's enormous, it's beautiful. It looks like a series of upturned pianos. But the, the quantities of materials that have gone into its construction are also considerable. I think it's been, since been surpassed, but it was at one time the holder of, of the world record for the longest continuous concrete pour, I think something like 17 days of continuously pouring concrete into its foundations. And so the bridge is going to leave a legacy, even if it's towers, and and um, cables and even the road surface itself is finally eroded away by by the the work of time. Its foundations will persist, kind of punched into the rock. This this aggregate of geologic materials that have all come from elsewhere and, and will leave a very distinctive idiosyncratic signature. Uh, the bridge was, you know, it, it stood out to me as uh, immediately as 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 a future fossil in the making. And so a few weeks later, I took my bike and cycled out to the old fourth road bridge as well, which is has largely been closed to traffic apart from the odd bus um, but you can still walk and cycle over it and again it, it just stood out for me as an image of the future of the bridge that had replaced it in a way I mean this was a bridge that is coming to the end of its life it's about now it's been silenced it's perhaps easier to see it as almost you know coming to the end of its road if you like and uh, it seemed to me you know to evoke very much that sense of you know, these roads one day will be silenced for one reason reason or another, but what trace will they leave? Roads themselves. So we've often, I'm sure, you know, other people, I've experienced this, where you're driving down perhaps a, a new bit of motorway and there'll be a little bit of um, the, the former A road next to it that is now abandoned and very quickly gets watered and cracked and plants start to go through it. And it doesn't seem to me that roads themselves would be something that would last that long but what parts of the road system you talk about in this book would what sort of circumstances would enable roads and road furniture to survive into the deep future well, I think you're right. I mean, there, there are something like 15 million kilometres of roads encircling the Earth. And it's thought that maybe 1% of those might persist into the geologic record. So you're right, most of it uh, on the surface will be erased. I think what might lead to the preservation of small fragments of it would be a landslide or um, sudden inundation by sea level rise or a king tide. Um, that led to, to its abandonment. So there will be fragments that are sealed over quickly by mud um, or earth and may begin the process of fossilization. But where we'll really find the most telling, the longest, the best preserved stretches are roads that go through tunnels that will effectively, you know, provided they're out of reach of geologic fault lines or something like that, then, you know, that they will be preserved from erosion. They'll be preserved from decay. And so, you know, Long tunnels like the Leydal Tunnel in Norway, for example, which I think is is over 20 kilometres long, uh, stands a good chance of being preserved in almost in its entirety, I would think, Um, along, as you say, with all of the furniture that goes with it, the signs, uh, the markings and so on. Um, in this chapter, you, you have a, an exploration of the, um, the brilliant photographer Edward Bertinsky. Can you tell us something about his work? 
Yeah, Batinsky's an, an astonishing photographer who, t- who takes very large-scale photographs of landscapes on a scale that almost means the landscape becomes a kind of abstract pattern. A lot of his photographs are taken from helicopters or, or looking down from a great height from the drone. And he's interested in, in tracking the kind of the scale of our impressions on landscapes. Lots of photographs of quarries crop up in his work um, or large-scale building projects like mega dams. And Batinsky struck me as a photographer who was really trying to grapple with the scale of our imprint on the earth and, you know, by implication, our intrusion on the deep future as well, our creation of these material traces that will that will last and and be very articulate about us. I said we'd get on to cities and in the book you you take a trip to Shanghai, a, a true mega city, and a city that famously is a place that is in constant change anyway. Places that were there 40 years ago are probably unrecognisable in in most of it now. It seems again unimaginable that a, a place on this scale could one day disappear, but what is going to happen to cities like Shanghai? It does seem unimaginable, I think. Uh, you're right. And, and Shanghai is, uh, albeit that it's, it's grown uh, incredibly rapidly from, from very modest beginnings only a hundred and so years ago, it has this kind of imperviousness to it. It's, it's so bold and so striking and physical. But Shanghai is also extremely vulnerable to sea level rise, and it will be sea level rise that leads to the preservation of, of most megacities. Shanghai is is on the coast. It has been sinking for the past hundred years. It's sunk by over two and a half meters in the past hundred years, partly because of the extraction of, of groundwater to feed the city, partly because some of the, the, the tallest skyscrapers are built on very soft foundations. And so Shanghai is vulnerable to sea level rise, and it will be the sea as it rises, bringing with it kind of the, the preserving uh, mud and sediment that in the deep future, unless we do something radical to address sea level rise, to address the vulnerability of cities like Shanghai, you know, stands a good chance of inundating it. And it's really a story of inundation, pressure and time. The surface level city uh, will disappear. It will be eroded, but the, the real story will be beneath the ground. And when I went to Shanghai, the first thing I did was was go up the, the Shanghai Tower, the tallest building in Shanghai, which is an, is an incredible building. You get a view unlike anything I've ever seen before for miles and miles and miles. And the city genuinely seemed endless. But the real story, I realised, was was beneath the ground. It was in the subsurface levels. It was the metro lines. It was the subterranean shopping malls and multi-level car parks because these are the levels that will be preserved against erosion that will have the balm of mud covering them over and that will be left through pressure through time to slowly form uh, fossils and the fossils i think will be incredible they'll be um, drawn from the astonishing abundance of materials that are filling our cities today that was the most striking thing i think about my visit to shanghai was was contemplating the range and quantity of different kinds of materials that could leave a fossil purely through their abundance whether that's a paper clip or a mobile phone a bicycle wheel or a set of chopsticks all of these ordinary everyday objects that have attached to them all kinds of, of personal in some cases very intimate stories again about who we are and how we've lived um, some of them will leave a trace and an impression 
in the strata. And so what will happen over millions of years will be the compression of, of these materials into a thin layer, maybe only a meter thick. Perhaps in 10 or 100 million years' time, Shanghai will be no more than a meter thick around the, the depth of a swimming pool. But it will be filled, punctuated with the outlines of all these everyday objects that at the moment we take for granted, but could still be there in the strata all that time distant from now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Farrier. We're talking about his new book, Footprints in Search of Future Fossils. And David, we were just talking about all the panoply of, of goods and things that you can find in a in a Shanghai shopping mall. Lots of this stuff ends up as waste in landfills and um, lots of it is is made of plastic, a material that seems to be absolutely immortal. And you you trace the story in the book of one bottle, basically from its um, its far beginnings in a primordial swamp up until its you know the the future of its history. Tell us something briefly about the journey of this bottle. 
Yeah, um, plastic is something that we have trained ourselves not to see, I think. In the book, I talk about this idea of plastic realism. I'm a, you know, I work it with, um, with novels and stories, um, and literary realism is a genre that tries to present us with a window on a world. It, it's a, a genre that presents itself as transparent. We're not meant to see the artifice of the novelist. And, and likewise, I think plastic offers a similar kind of transparency. We're invited all the time to use, to surround ourselves with plastic, but not really to see it, almost to sort of see the world through it instead. But plastic is incredibly densely storied material. Its origins are in the very deep past and the formation of oil reserves, you know, reaching back 150 million years. And the durability of plastic means that it will persist far beyond our lifetimes or the lifetimes of our children's children's children. So in the in the book, I tell the story of a single plastic bottle that is idly discarded from a hand, um, anyone's hand, and ends up in uh, the Huangpo River in Shanghai and makes its way out to sea. And I think about what happens to the, this this um, plastic bottle as its story takes it out to sea into the great Pacific Gaia and then slowly is broken down into smaller and smaller pieces because, of course, plastic doesn't biodegrade. It photodegrades, which gives it its, its longevity, but also means it retains its its properties, as it were. So a piece of, you know, a piece of plastic, like a plastic bottle, can remain active in the environment it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces for an extremely long time, hundreds of years perhaps, until gradually it sinks and settles to the ocean floor. And that's where my story ends. My bottle spends a long time circulating in, in the oceanic gyres, um, interacting with the creatures that live there, working through generations and generations of creatures that are affected by plastic pollution, but gradually breaks down into microfibers and finds its way into a cleft uh, on a seamount on the sea floor and is covered over again by sediments and slowly begins its transformation back to oil. Now, the, the almost the entirety of that plastic bottle's journey from the oil to oil, we could trace in enormously long piece of ice, an ice core that is mined from a from a, a deep bore in the Antarctic, maybe. And you got to hold a piece of one of these ice cores. Tell us about yeah your investigation into ice cores. Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to go to an ice core laboratory in Hobart in Tasmania, and um, they took us into the the ice room, which was freezing cold, and I got to hold a, a kind of a, a lump of ice that was about the size of a loaf of bread, only about 30-odd years old, so so younger than I was. But it was still an astonishing experience. And, you know, what's so remarkable about ice is its, its capacity to remember. Um, ice is the planet's seat of memory. We can find layered in glaciers, in, in ice sheets, um, a detailed record, you know, season by season of past climate history because the, the oxygen isotopes that fall in winter are heavier than those that fall in summer. So they leave a kind of a banded layer and you, scientists can use this to, to interpret what the climate was like thousands and thousands of years ago because trapped in, these, in, in the bubbles in this ice is all kinds of information about what was travelling on the atmosphere, what the carbon concentration was, what other kinds of particles were present as well. And so we, we've got evidence of, of the decline in lead smelting after the end of the Roman Empire. There's evidence in ice cores of the New World genocides um, that as populations in the Americas declined, uh, farming 
declined briefly, uh, less carbon was being added to the atmosphere. And as a, there's an observable decline around, you know, post-1492 of carbon held in, in these ice cores, evidence of, you know, a devastating human impact. So ice is, is an incredible archive of all kinds of information about how the planet has evolved, its information about what the past climates were of, and also of human activity. And what struck me holding this this loaf of ice was that this piece of ice could potentially hold a trace of myself, a trace of the carbon that I've produced in my lifetime. Or if not that, then carbon produced in circumstances that would almost identically match my own. And it was an uncanny moment of, of recognition, almost like kind of seeing my own mirror, look, my own image rather, look back at me from a kind of distorted mirror. You mentioned earlier that the idea of the rise in CO2 in the atmosphere and how this has, you know, this has become noticeable. And, and obviously this would be something that was noticeable in ice cores. Um, obviously the various different changes of pollutants in the ice cores, but also at some point in sort of rock strata mm-hmm. is something that scientist debate is one of the markers of the Anthropocene, the sort of the era of man, and the other one of those is the sort of thin band of nuclear fallout mm-hmm. from the the 1940s to the 1960s. There's a lot of radioactive waste in the world, and you talk about two places where there are different ways, thinking of different ways in which we can store this waste bearing in mind that it's going to be there long after anybody that remembers why it's there is dead a place in new mexico and a place in finland Uh, tell us about these two contrasting sites yeah well i mean the, the problem of nuclear waste is what to do with it of course it remains lethal for thousands of years how do you communicate that danger to people whose culture will have changed in ways we can't comprehend whose language will bear almost no resemblance to the language we speak now uh it's an astonishing challenge and it's really struck me as one that got to the heart of the story i was trying to tell which because this is a, a, a deliberate and direct effort to address the future the story i'm interested in really in footprints is is what story do we want to tell about ourselves or what Rather, what story do we want to be told about us? What kind of legacy do we want to leave? Our our future fossils are a legacy, but they're also an opportunity to kind of take hold of that that story and shape it how we want to. And in in Carlsbad in New Mexico and at Onkelo in Finland, they're taking two very different approaches to this when nuclear waste is concerned. At the Waste Isolation Processing Plant, or WIP, in New Mexico, their plan is to leave a whole, an elaborate series of, of markers that they hope will cause uh, future generations, future cultures to shun that site, to see it as a place of sickness and, and to, to leave it well alone. Uh, and th- these markers include a whole series of um, obelisks covered in warnings in lots of different languages, but also visual um, representations of, kind of very visceral human emotions of disgust and fear. These images, these images of human faces are modelled on Edvard Munch's painting The Screen because it was thought this 
um, this image more than any other transcended cultural norms. It doesn't depend on an understanding of what the skull and crossbones might mean or any other kind of iconography. It's so visceral and immediate that it has the potential to speak across time, to speak across 10,000 years. So at Carlsbad, their plan is is to market uh, in ways that they hope will remain indelible for generations and generations. But at, at, at Onkelo in Finland, they're planning the opposite. Their plan is to um, is not to market. They're constructing a vast repository that I was fortunate enough to visit. It's uh, half. A, it's about five kilometers of tunnels that twist through down to about half a kilometer deep in in the bedrock. And um, the plan, once that that repository has been completely filled, is simply to leave it alone, not to market, but just let the woods, let nature take it, take it over, and for it to be forgotten. And it really struck me that these ways of addressing the future, they're diametrically opposed, but they're both interested in, in, in how do we tell a story about ourselves to people who will have to live in a world that we've made and live with the consequences of that world, but uh, with whom we might have no real common basis of understanding. Just one more thing before we finish then. And, you know, we've been talking here about vast time spans both into the past and into the future and it trips off the tongue quite easily but these sort of vast time scales are difficult to actually visualize to comprehend and and i wonder if during the during the writing of this book you've sort of come to terms with that in any way have you come to any sort of greater comprehension of the you know the vastness of deep time yeah, well, I mean, it, it is a challenge. That is one of the challenges I faced in the book, and I think a challenge for readers as well. But my encounter with deep time and the prospect of our traces on the deep future has been a process of discovering our intimacy with deep time, our intimacy with the deep future. So many of the traces that we're leaving are products of everyday, ordinary, sometimes intimate, sometimes banal decisions that we're making. And it's become more and more apparent to me through writing footprints, through talking to people about it afterwards, that deep time is a very intimate presence in our everyday. We live surrounded by deep time. We, we tend to think on timescales that, of course, are much shorter, whether it's in terms of, of political cycles or investment in, in the next generation, or even in just, you know, the, the, the time of the body when we're hungry, when we're tired. But we also live in the flow of, of deep time, which is is shaping the world that we live in. And now we are in turn shaping as well. And so coming to terms with deep time, coming to see deep time really has been about appreciating that deep time is not just some vast, chilly, sublime dimension that really resists you know, human comprehension or imagination, but it's all around us. It's here every day in the durable materials we surround ourselves with, in the carbon that is rising up to the atmosphere because of the way that we consume energy, and numerous other ways in which our traces are being impressed into the planet for the long term. It seems to me that the challenge of the climate crisis very much resembles the challenge of deep time in this respect. It's very difficult. Um, it might seem very difficult to see deep time. It's, it's quite difficult, I think, to appreciate, to see the extent and breadth and diversity of the climate crisis that we live in today. So we inhabit the flow of deep time and our traces will leave a legacy on the deep future. But this, I think, is a hopeful story as well as an elegiac one. There are certain future fossils we're leaving that are guaranteed. Some of our megacities, whether it's, it's New Orleans uh, or Mumbai or Shanghai, 
will almost certainly leave some kind of trace. Some fragment of the road system will persist. There will be plastic in the geologic record now, but some of our, our future fossils are simply foretold. And there's a hopefulness to this because the hope is in the if, if you like, if we continue to act as we do, the Great Barrier Reef may become one very long monument in stone, a long 2,000 300 kilometer meter future fossil, a relic of the fact that we didn't act fast enough. But there is still time to act fast enough to save coral reefs. There's time to address many of the the things that we're doing that may lead to a kind of legacy in the deep future, but don't have to. And that's my that's my my passion for telling this story. Really, is when we think about our future fossils, we're forced to think about. We're invited to think about what world do we want to live in and what world do we want to leave behind? What do we want our legacy to be? Um, And so deep time, again, becomes something that's really intimately involved in us and how we live. It's very close. It's very proximate. We need to think about the decisions we're making about climate change and so on, on the short term, the immediate term, because these are very urgent issues. But there is a long term dimension to this as well. And I really believe that thinking about the deep future dimension of this can really help us to to focus on and motivate us to engage with the urgent problems as well. So I've been talking to David Farrier. We've been talking about his book Footprints in Search of Future Fossils, which is out now in the UK from Fourth Estate. David, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.